Well, I hope you enjoyed your one-week break from the book of Leviticus, because we are right back at it this morning. In chapter 5, we are going to read verses 7 and 13, and while you're turning there, um, all jokes aside, I'm thankful for my my dear brother and friend, uh, Justin Hartzell, for bringing the word last week. Unfortunately, it didn't get recorded, but I got the gist of uh, most of it from most of you. And so uh, that, and that was kind of exciting, I got to be honest with you, is to ask you what he preached and to hear um, how it uh, encouraged you. So praise God for him. And, um, and I'm ready to get in God's word this morning. So Leviticus chapter 5, we're going to read verses 7 through 13. Precious and errant and fallible word of God says this. If he's not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring it to the Lord. For his trespass, which he has committed. Two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. And he shall bring them to the priest who shall offer uh, that which is for the sin offering first and wring off its head from its neck. But shall not divide it completely. Verse 9. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar. And the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. And he shall offer the second as a burnt offering according to the prescribed manner. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. But if he is not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he who sins shall bring forth his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. Then he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as a memorial portion... And burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin, that he has committed in any of these matters, and it shall be forgiven him. The rest shall be the priest as a grain offering. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, we do thank you, really, Lord, for the gospel we've already heard this morning. We thank you. Lord, that in your sovereign plan you worked out our salvation, that apart from us through no merit of our own, by your grace and as evidence of your mercy, you sent your Son to take upon him the wrath that was due our sins. Father, we give you praise, honor, and glory because you have purchased and redeemed us. But even more than that, we give you praise, honor, and glory because you alone are worthy. And I pray, Lord, as we hear from your word, that we would be reminded of our need. We'd be reminded of the reality of sin and the glory of the gospel. We'd be reminded of the goodness of your salvation for us and your son Christ. That you might be honored by your people as our hearts are filled with gratitude for this gospel, which is purchased for us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I saw this old article, because I went looking for it, um, of a mayor in a city in Russia who all the way back in December of 2007 published a list of 27 excuses he would no longer tolerate. Civil servants who use such excuses as, I don't know, it's lunchtime, or I was on sick leave, would inevitably lose their jobs. 
Period. Other banned excuses include, I can't, it's impossible, or it's not my job. Every one of those excuses would end in the termination of the employee who used such excuses. And the the mayor's reason for his decision is simple, according to him. He said that city officials, the mayor says, should solve problems, not make excuses. In a way, that's kind of what we see in our text today. All excuses are banned. So, you can't afford a lamb for the sacrifice, okay? Bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. So, so, you, so you're so poor, you can't even afford two turtle doves or pigeons? That's okay. Bring a tenth of ephah of flour. Now, the Lord's reason is very different, of course, from that mayor's. He was not teaching Israel that they should solve problems, not make excuses. No, not at all. What he was teaching them is that they were all guilty. That defilement does not discriminate. That's really the big idea of today's text. Defilement does not discriminate. But God made a way for all to be clean. Defilement does not discriminate, but God made a way for all to be clean. And of course, by defilement, I mean the guilt of sin or the penalty that's, that's due to sin. And we've looked at this concept of defilement, how sin makes things unclean. But, but what I want to do today is I want to look a little closer on how the effects of sin do not discriminate. And so we start with this. Everyone who sins is guilty. And everyone who sins is guilty, and there are no exceptions. Everyone who sins is guilty, and there are no exceptions. All commentaries that I read this week or last week on this passage, they really focus on the mercy of God, right? How merciful is God that he would allow someone who doesn't have an offering, to, uh, that can't afford that offering to bring that one. And really, that's not wrong. It's true. God is merciful in that. This does express God's great mercy, and we'll look at that a little bit later. But I believe there's an equally important lesson here that all commentaries Miss, and that is, the Israelites were to learn that defilement does not discriminate, that sin causes everyone to be guilty, and more important to our text, that the penalty of that guilt was required of each and every person without exception. There were no get-out-of-jail-free cards. There was no, well, I'll just try harder next time. They were all Guilty, and there are no exceptions. They were all guilty regardless of their intentions, we see. Regardless of their intentions, they were guilty. We've seen this over and over again in Leviticus 4 and 5. Whether an Israelite intended to do something or not does not determine whether that word, thought, or deed was sinful or not. Sin is sin, isn't it? So, so when we read, and we read this all the time, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments, we read that in, in chapter 4, we read it in verses 2, 13, verse 22, verse 27, or, or even two weeks ago when we looked at two out of the three examples of, uh, in chapter 5, the situations that determine a sin offering, intention did not and does not determine guilt. That's the point. The lack of intention does not mitigate or lessen the penalty of guilt that the defiled person receives. The unintentional sin still ruptures our relationship 
with God. They are still responsible for that unholy dust. You remember the Sandlot illustration that, that settled on the tent of meeting. And they are still at risk of being cut off from the covenant community or worse yet, having the presence of God leave them. And I really think our kids offer a very good illustration of this. Maybe our kids, not yours. Maybe I should say that first. Our kids often hurt each other unintentionally. Yes, our kids hurt each other intentionally as well, and they, but that's another illustration. They often hurt each other unintentionally, and, and they wrongfully assume that because they did not mean to hurt their sibling, they are therefore not guilty of doing anything wrong. We, we of course, teach them that I didn't mean to is not an appropriate response when you've busted your sister's lip. Well, God's teaching the Israelites a similar lesson here. And friends, don't we need to learn the same lesson? They say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But I think we learned from our text today that the road to hell is paved with no intention at all. Our unintentional transgression of the law of Christ is still sin. Our failure to love the Lord despite our good intentions... They're still loathsome and ruinous. Our unintentional love of self above others is still an abhorrent act of rebellion against the true and living God. And so, oh, how we need to learn to hate and forsake all of our sin, even our unintentional sin. But they were not only guilty regardless of their intention, they're also guilty regardless of their recognition. They were. They were guilty regardless of their recognition. Just as a lack of intention was not an excuse, neither is a lack of recognition. That is, not realizing you have sin does not make it any less sinful. So we, this is something we've read again in chapter 4 and chapter 5 over and over again. We read about the sin being hidden from their eyes or hidden from the eye of the assembly or they were just unaware. And as we see that, we, we read about the offering being the remedy. When they realize their guilt, then they're to offer the sin offering. We read that in chapter 4, verses 13, 14, 22, 23, 27, 28, and throughout the first six chapters of chapter 5. The lesson there is very clear. Sin is sin, whether you realize you've done it or not. You're guilty of sin, whether you recognize it or not. The guilt that was hidden from their eyes was still guilt long before they saw it. Again, our kids provide a very good illustration here. We have one child, I won't tell you which one it is, in particular, who wants to fight us on this issue. The fact that he did not recognize let you do some logical deduction there. The fact that the child did not recognize or realize, we'll just go with he, that he did something even after you bring it to his attention, therefore, therefore somehow makes him not guilty. So he'll be swinging something, usually a plastic bat because he's in the World Series every day in his mind, or a lightsaber because he's battling Darth Maul every day in his mind. Uh, and he'll accidentally belt one of his sisters in the face. And when he's accused of hitting his sister, he swears his innocent because he didn't know that he hit her. As though not knowing he hit her equals not hitting her. 
He feels like taking responsibility translates somehow to admitting that I've done something premeditated and it's simply not the case. And as we continuously try to explain, if you hurt someone, you are responsible for it whether you know it happened or not. And likewise, again, God was teaching the Israelites the same exact lesson. Sin does not need to be premeditated, nor does it even need to be recognized to bring about the penalty of guilt. And that's no less true today. Did you know this? This is going to be daunting. Um, There is sin we commit that we will never know in this lifetime. Do you realize that? There is sin that you will commit against the Lord and one another that you will never even recognize or know is sin in this lifetime. And here's the problem. That sin is no less toxic to our relationship to God and our relationship with one another. The sin we refused or, or to recognize is, is no less ruinous. Hear me now. If that were the only kind of sin that you had ever committed in your life, it would still be enough to condemn you to hell forever. So they were guilty. Whether they recognized it or not, regardless of intention or not. But they were also guilty regardless of categories. This is really where we get into our passage today. The fact that defilement does not discriminate is clearly communicated in in chapter 5, verses 7 through 13. Read with me verse 7 again. It says... If he's not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass, which he has committed, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. So so those who are in need of atoning for their sins and cleaning up defilement because of their sin, if they could not afford a lamb, they had another option. Most people, even those of little means in Israel, would have been able to afford two turtle doves or two young pigeons. That would cover all. Almost everybody. But it wouldn't necessarily cover everyone, which is why verse 11 exists. Look at verse 11. It says, But if he's not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he who sins shall bring for his offering one tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. The the Lord graciously provided the means by which the absolute poorest among an Israelite could offer a sin offering. They were allowed to bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour. And notice that because it's a sin offering, what's it lacking? It didn't include the oil or the frankincense. Those are the two most costly parts of a grain offering. And they were excluded so that any and every Israelite or sojourner could still bring a sin offering before the Lord. Yes, as we saw back in chapter 2, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour was still a large amount of flour. And yes, the flour still had to be ground into fine flour. It was good flour. The sacrifice was still costly. But the primary lesson here for the Israelites was very clear. Sin does not discriminate based on categories. Everyone had sin that had to be atoned for. Everyone was responsible for the defilement against the palace tent of the Lord and had to offer a sin offering for that. 
Sin does not discriminate based on categories, neither ethnicities or socioeconomic status or age, nor any other category is discriminated against by the effect of sin. Sin is an equal opportunity destroyer. Red, yellow, black, and white, sin makes us guilty in his sight. And Israel had to learn that there were no exemptions, no exceptions. Everyone is guilty. The guilt of sin, therefore, must be dealt with. Everyone has sinned and everyone must deal with their guilt and the penalties due their sin. And for those who don't know this, the penalty for your sin is death. So, everyone who sins is guilty and there's no exceptions, regardless of intention, regardless of recognition, and regardless of category. But not only that, we see in this text that everyone who sins is guilty and there are no excuses. Everyone who sins is guilty, and there are no excuses. Our culture, probably more than any other in human history, and if you know me, you know I don't really like to say that, but I thought long and hard about this one. Probably more than any other in human history defends and propagates excuses. We have become masters of deflecting responsibility. Here's what I mean by that. So we're taught that our thoughts, words, and deeds are products of our biochemistry. But, but here's the problem. If that's the whole story, then what you need is medication and not forgiveness. We're told that our thoughts, words, and deeds are products of our past. Your parents and others are responsible for the current choices that you make. Of course, they are really responsible because they're just products of their parents and so on and so forth. But if if that's the whole story, what you need is psychotherapy and not purification. We're told that our thoughts, words, and deeds are the byproducts of tradition. An archaic cultural influence. So we need liberty. We need to be free from the chains of conservatism and traditionalism. Not to be recognized or reconciled to a sovereign holy God. Listen, here's the danger. There is truth. There's an element of truth in each one of those statements that I just said. But did you know that a half-truth is always more dangerous than an out-and-out lie? Our biochemistry does influence our thoughts, words, and deeds. But our thoughts, words, and deeds also influence our biochemistry. And at the end of the day, we'll still give an account for every careless word regardless of your diagnosis. Our past does influence our thoughts, words, and deeds. But listen, our thoughts, words, and deeds influence how we perceive our past. At the end of the day, we'll still be responsible for every corrupt word. Our culture does shape the way we speak and think and act as we influence the culture, but we do influence the culture. And at the end of the day, when the Lord returns, every person who has ever lived will stand before the judgment seat and give an account for every deed, every word, and every thought. The wicked unto eternal condemnation and the righteous unto eternal life. Everyone is responsible. And friends, there are no excuses. And I I thought about this this week. This is probably for me, but uh, I can't help but mention one other way that we sometimes make excuses, especially if, if, like me, you tend to lean more reformed in theology and you you, you have a, a strong belief of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Here's what I mean. It's common... For some to say, and I've said this in the past, that that people reject God or people refuse to trust Christ because they can't do otherwise. 
And, and look, there, there's truth in that, right? We, we know that. We know that apart from God doing a work in their heart, um, that they will reject the Lord. But, but here's what I mean. When we say that, when we say they're rejecting Christ because they just they can't do anything else, we're almost encouraging a sense of lack of responsibility. And again, I wouldn't call this even a half-truth as much as it is a misunderstanding. We, we must remember that people have the natural ability to respond to God. Physically, they are able. Naturally, they make choices to, uh, for or against to obey or disobey God. To believe or to not believe in Christ. Listen, if people wanted to trust Christ, they could. And, and many of us are uncomfortable saying that. We, we often speak of man's moral inability in terms that make it sound like he's not responsible. But the problem is the Bible never, ever presents it like that. Never. In the New Testament, people are presented with the gospel, the good news that Christ has died for our sins, that he's been raised for our justification, and then they're told, believe it and repent. They're not told, well, let's just wait until your heart's changed. They're not told, well, I know that you said you believe and repent, but let's just wait and see. It's the gospel proclamation. This is what God has done. Now this is how you must respond. There was no question of whether a person was chosen or whether they had a new heart. That was not an issue. The gospel is that Christ came to save sinners and sinners everywhere are called to stop living for themselves and start following Jesus. Being dead in sin is never presented as an excuse for disobedience. Being unregenerate is never an excuse for disobedience. Had my brother Charles, who always loves to tell me, and it's a, it's a wise word, people do what they want to do. <laughs> yeah. And it's true. They make a choice to reject Christ, and they are responsible for that choice. The doctrines of grace offer no consolation for those who freely choose to reject Christ. And we need to remember that. All right, you're looking at your bulletin right about now, and you're thinking, boy, I got a lot of blanks. But this is the part of the sermon where we're going to pick it up a little bit. So get your pens ready, get ready to fill it in, and uh, we'll, we'll move along. All right, everyone's guilty, and there are no exceptions, there are no excuses, and there are no alternatives. I just had to add that in there because this is what the text actually teaches us. There are no excuses, there are no exceptions, and no alternatives. If all are guilty, then all incur the penalty. Everyone must offer a sin offering for their sin, and there are no alternatives. See, that's all there was for that point. You wrote that down, right? Now now we're ready to move on. Here's the next point. Yet in God's great mercy, He did provide a way. Certainly, as the commentators point out, this text points to that. God did Provide a way. God made a way for each and every Israelite to pay the penalty of guilt. He made that way. He decided that. He determined that the tenth of an ephah of fine flour was not cheap to a person of little or no means. Yet, and we can't miss this, it was still fully available to each and every one. Anyone who could, anyone could provide this offering. Why? Did you read Leviticus 19 this week? Remember verse 9? 
This is what the Israelites were instructed to do. Listen, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. That immediately makes you think of of who? Boaz and Ruth, right? Absolutely. But Leviticus 19, this is the point. God instructed them. See, the corners and the gleanings, they were to be left for the sojourners. So everyone had access to this flower. It was left. Those who owned fields and workers out in the fields were to leave the edges. They were not to take everything out of the field, but instead just bypass the edges. That which was dropped when they were harvesting, leave that so the poor and the sojourner could come behind and gather it up. So even a person who was completely bankrupt could find a way to offer a sin offering. A flower. God made a way for each and every Israelite to pay the penalty of guilt. God also made a way for each and every Israelite to protect every Israelite's relationship with the Lord. He made a way for every Israelite to protect their late relationship with the Lord. You remember we talked about a couple weeks ago the burden of, of cleaning the palace tent. That's what this offering was particularly for. But that wasn't just left to one segment of Israel. Remember, there were instructions for the high priest, there were instructions for the elders, the leaders, and then the congregation. It wasn't just left up to the priest or leaders. Each and every Israelite was responsible for cleansing the defilement that was caused by their sin. They were all to bring sin offerings. And don't miss this. The sin of the poor person caused the tent to be defiled just like the sin of the high priest. Yes, there there were differences because of the roles as we discussed But there was still a sin offering that was needed for both. And God had made a way for each and every Israelite to do so in order to protect their relationship with the Lord. He also made a way for each and every Israelite not only to pay the penalty of guilt, to protect their relationship with the Lord, but to participate in the worship of God. He made a way for each and every Israelite to participate in the worship of God. All of these offerings were part of the worship of Yahweh. As we saw with all of the other offerings, they were meant to be inclusive, not exclusive. All were invited before the God of Israel. See, I told you we were going to go really fast through that point. You didn't believe me, did you? Oh, ye of little faith. All right, there's something else we need to recognize about the way God made. The way God made, it was temporary. This is important. The writer of Hebrews explains this very, very well. The way God made it was temporary. And if you don't know, we're going to be going a lot through Hebrews, particularly Hebrews 10. I know we've read it a lot, but keep reading it because it's important for understanding Leviticus. Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would not, uh, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The same offering had to be offered year after year because it was a temporary remedy. Just as it was an insufficient remedy. The way God made was not only temporary but insufficient. We go right back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, actually, we pick up at the very next verse, verse 4. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. 
It was not sufficient really to get to the heart of the matter. And what was the heart of the matter? These sacrifices, remember, they didn't really cleanse or purify a person's heart. It did not bring them into a restored, reconciled relationship with God. It was temporary, it was insufficient, and ultimately, and this is very important, it was an imperative. An imperative. What does that mean? An imperative, of course, is a command, right? This offering was commanded to the people. The way God made here was something they were supposed to obey. And and look, this is really the heart of the issue. I can't tell you how important this is. The instructions for the sin offering told the Israelites what to do when they transgressed the king's law. It told them how to remedy the situation, at least temporarily, even if insufficiently. The instructions for the sin offering told the Israelites what to do. But it didn't tell the Israelites what God had done. Right? It was certainly gracious... But it never addressed the primary issue, the morally corrupt heart of the worshiper. And ultimately, here's what the sin offering was. It was a tourniquet placed on a severed limb. Like it slowed the bleeding, it it prolonged the life, but it was never going to last. It was never going to provide healing. And if that was the end of the story, it would be no gospel at all. But praise God, it's not. Because God not only made a way then, but God has made an end now. God not only made a way then, He has made an end now. At the cross, God made an end of the guilt of sin. At the cross, God through Christ made an end to the power of sin. At the cross... God made an end for all people everywhere, from every nation. See, I know we, we laid it on heavy. Like I, we, we talk about sin a lot here because the Bible does. I admit that. It's been told at times that I may be a little hellfire and brimstone of a preacher. Take that as a compliment. Um, but I will say, maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've heard a lot of this. And, and, and that next level of, of sin unintentional... Sin not even recognized. Sin not even discriminating on categories. It just, man, that weighs heavy on you. Like I, I'm more sinful than I even thought. Yes, you are. But here's the good news. Sin does not discriminate. Friend, neither does salvation. See, see, maybe you are here this morning and, and you're thinking, I'm more sinful than I thought I was. I say to you, yes, you are. But here's what you need to know. As you understand yourself to be more and more sinful, when you know Christ, you understand His grace to be greater and greater and greater every single day of your life. And as great of a sinner you are, it doesn't compare to how great His grace is. You will never exhaust God's grace and salvation with your sin. That's a beautiful thing. So, neither ethnicity, socioeconomic status, age, or any other category is discriminated against by the effectual call of our Lord Jesus. We said sin is an equal opportunity destroyer, salvation is an equal opportunity redeemer. Red, yellow, black, and white, through Christ we are innocent in His sight. Through Christ, God made an end. 
that is permanent, not temporary. Through Christ, God made an end that is permanent. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, they are a permanent remedy. A once-for-all salvation. A for-all-time redemption. But not only that, in Christ God made an end that was not only permanent, but sufficient. Not insufficient, but sufficient. I, I, I thought about corroborating these with other verses, but I'm just going to go right back to the verses we just read. Consider these verses again. Hear them again, because they're so good, right? It's just so good. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We have been sanctified. We are being sanctified. That offering was sufficient. Once and for all, doing away with sin, cleansing us who now stand in no need of cleansing. See, we're not called to repeatedly come before an altar and offer an offering uh, to temporarily and insufficiently cleanse us. But instead, we have the perfect offering of Christ. Once for all, for His people, that we might stand before God, truly reconciled by His grace, and completely and utterly cleansed. But it's not only permanent and sufficient. It's also, and praise God for this, an indicative. Now I know, that's, a, that's an English term. But it's the opposite of an imperative. It's, it's not, I say this, you do this. An indicative is, I've done this, therefore you are this. It's no longer an imperative. It's no longer you transgress the king's law. It's this is what the king has done so that your future transgressions no longer count against you. Each and every transgression, every law that you break, past, present, and future, has been paid for on the cross of Christ. It's an indicative It's a statement of fact. It is history. It is finished was the cry from the cross. It is redemption accomplished. One quick application for you. Because here's what we do. I want to connect the dots back. Because yes, defilement does not discriminate. Yes, salvation does not discriminate. But that should lead us to no longer want to make an excuse for our sin. And I I just, I want to ask you, if you had to think about what your excuse is, we're filled with them. We got them all, right? What's your excuse? What's your excuse from committing yourself to a deeper relationship with the Lord? What's your excuse for for knowing that lost person and building that relationship with them and just not being able to go and share with them that you're a Christian, you love Christ? What's your excuse, men, For failing every day to come home and lead your family in the worship of the king. What's your excuse for being committed to worship? What's your excuse on Sunday morning to not get here an hour early to commit to grow? What's your excuse on Wednesday night to not get here to grow with your brothers and sisters in Christ? What's your excuse to not serve 
I just I want you to do me a favor. Because yes, we, we just learned that we've been freed from those excuses and praise God, right? But here's the point. Is once we've been freed, why would we run back to our excuses? Why would we, because of this great salvation, not want to rid ourselves of the excuses we make for sin and run into the arms of Jesus, wanting to live for Him and honor Him? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to do me a favor today. Just just write it down. What are your excuses? If if that thing, whatever it is that's prickling your heart, and you know it's something you, you should do, it's biblical to do, you just haven't done it, and you've made excuses... Write them down. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to share the gospel with yourself in your prayer time. I want you, as you pray, I want you to talk about what Jesus Christ, what God the Father, what God the Son, what God the Spirit has done. And then I want you to read your excuses in light of that. And I, I don't want to put any added weight or pressure onto that. I just want you to read them. Because if you're like me, Those excuses sound really good when I'm in charge and I'm king of the life, right? But when I recognize what what the Lord has done in this great salvation, what he has purchased for me, what it cost him, and then I read my excuses, they don't seem like such good excuses anymore. So that's my challenge. And here's what I want. I want that not to become a burden over you. Because look, if I've twisted your arm into coming to a grove class or coming to worship, or I guilt you into those things, that's not a good motivator. It won't last. It will not last if you're guilted into coming and doing anything. Here's what I want you to recognize. The same thing we recognize here. The fact that salvation does not discriminate. Let that be the pure motivator For your joy to want to commit to a deep relationship with Christ. To want to stop making excuses for whatever it is that you've been making excuses for for far too long. And I promise you this. This will help. I'll join you. (laughs) If you don't think I make excuses, you don't know me very well. (laughs) Hopefully I'm transparent with that with you. But I do. I make excuses all the time. But when they're seen in light of the gospel, they don't measure to a hill of beans. <laughs> so let's commit to do that together as a family. And let's commit to be open and honest with each other as a family so we can hold each other accountable to say, sin doesn't discriminate and there are no excuses. But salvation doesn't discriminate. Therefore, there should be no excuses. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me? Gracious Father, we thank you for a reminder, Lord, that really we need to hear day in and day out. uh, That we have all sinned against you unintentionally. Even unbeknownst to us. And yes, Lord, even at times intentionally. As we choose to serve ourselves. Lord, we're reminded by your word today that the penalty of guilt comes against each and every one for each and every sin. That there's no exception, no excuses. There's no alternatives to being reconciled to you other than the offering that you prescribed. 
Lord, we, we thank you that we proclaim now not works that must be accomplished in order to be right with you, but we proclaim now the good news that we've been made right by the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that is our victory cry. That is what we come to you now to proclaim, that we've been cleansed, that we've been restored, redeemed, forgiven, and we stand before you a grateful people. Lord, we admit that our tendency is to reject this gospel, to fall back into a pattern of attempting to merit something in your sight, to earn our salvation, or to attempt to stand on our own, to think that our sin is not as grievous as your word says it is. I pray today that it would be a day where we would confess our sin, clinging to Christ, giving you honor, giving you praise and glory for that redemption that is ours. Lord, truly, all glory be to you forever and ever, for it is finished in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We come to our time of invitation this morning. I pray it's clear for those of us who are in Christ. Listen, remember, I want to encourage you, that list of excuses, remember after sharing the gospel. And here's what's so beautiful about this. Remember they've been paid for. Right? Read them in the light of, yes, they've been paid for, but Lord, oh, motivate me that these are simply will not do if I want to be someone who ultimately really does live for your glory. Um, that, is, that is key in understanding this. We're not trying to guilt anyone in any way, shape, or form, but the Spirit does convict us often. <laughs> and often that includes uh, a difficult path of some self-recognition of how sinful we are, but never separate that from the grace that's been given to us in Christ and the payment that's been made for those very sins by God sending His Son to the cross and pouring upon Him the wrath that we deserved and giving us the righteousness that we now stand clean before Him. So if you're a church member, you're a Christian, that's the application. It's very simple. I do encourage you, write those excuses, share them with a neighbor, share them with somebody that would encourage you and hold you accountable in some ways. And and we all know what it looks like. I don't have to press we know what you, I know it, it without a shadow of a doubt. Listen, I've got to write these things. Um, and without a shadow of a doubt, it's very quickly what my excuses are and, and what I make them for. So, so I'm not, you're not alone in this. We do this together. We all have them. And yet I would encourage you that we would strive to no longer make those things be viable and lasting in our lives. But we would understand that sin's the cause of this. Christ has paid for our sin. Lord, help me to strive to honor you with the way I live. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I I pray that you've heard very clearly that that we are all sinners and therefore we are all justly deserving of the wrath of God, the penalty due our sin. And, And that can be weighty for you, certainly. It can be a heavy thing for you to hear. But the good news of the gospel is that there's been something done because of our sin. Here's what it is. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came and lived a perfect life. He's the only one on planet earth to ever live perfectly under the law of God, our creator. And if we, listen, you get this? We heard this this morning. Jesus didn't even sin unintentionally. (laughs) Nothing he did was sinful. It's how holy and righteous he is. And, And in that, Because we sin, we earn death. 
We earn to be separated from God, a relationship with our Creator, and we earn an eternity apart from Him. But because of Christ, we can now have life, and life abundant. Here's why. Because on a cross 2,000 years ago, God the Father put all the wrath for sin on His Son, Jesus. And then He gave everyone who would believe in His Son and repent and bow a knee to Him as King, He gave the righteousness that Jesus earned. So now, even though you have sinned and sinned great, you can stand before your Creator, the judge of all the earth, as someone who is clean. But it's not your own doing. It's been done for you. And all you have to do is turn from your sins, repent, and believe in the gospel message. Trust in His finished work. And you today can have a personal relationship with this Savior, Jesus, who is good. If you don't know the Lord, you would say, that's me. I I don't know if I have a relationship with Jesus. Here's what I want you to do. Um, I'm going to have a brother pray in a moment. We're going to read a benediction. We're going to dismiss. But don't leave. We we keep the the, the first couple of rows just open for people who want to come and do work with the Lord. So if at all possible, you can keep these rows clear. Please do. We, we want to leave that for an invitation time. And I'll be down here. There will be some deacons down here as well. We'd love the opportunity to share Jesus with you and what that looks like for you to give your life to Christ. Repent and believe in the gospel today. Church, I love you so much. It's been a great day in the house of the Lord. I'm thankful for each and every one of you. I hope you know that and I hope you experience that. I'm going to ask my brother Bob to close us in a word of prayer. Then I'll read the benediction. We'll be dismissed. But please, if you have work to do, let's get work done. Amen.